Hello, my name is Omaya Jones and welcome to Film Quotes Film. On the third Tuesday of every month, we host in concert with the Arkansas Times and Riverdale 10 VIP Cinema, a screening of a great film. Today, Al, Michael, and myself will be discussing Otto Preminger's Bunny Lake is Missing, which we screened in March. So check it out, and you'll hear from me on the other side. Hello, Michael. Hey. Hello, Al. Hello. Um, so we've all seen at least a couple of Otto Preminger films, as we were just discussing before we yeah, started. Yeah, a few. Yeah. I've only seen yeah. two. Is there, are there, are, I've only seen three, so. Yeah. Well, so in, in those films, is there anything that you've noticed specifically about his his traits as a director that that you um, can think of? Nothing. That it's yeah. It's been so long since I've seen uh, Laura and Anatomy of a Murder that nothing readily jumps out at me that I can tie those films together. Yeah. No, yeah, me. Yeah, it's been forever since I've seen either of those movies. Uh, both kind of crime thriller. He kind of st- yeah. sticks to one genre yeah. uh, for the most part. Yeah. Even well, a couple anyway. musicals thrown in there. Yeah. Well, who who wasn't making musicals back then? <laughs> well, I think I, I would say first, like, as we're recording this, we've got the film on the TV, and I think what's interesting about Perminger is the way he uses the wide the the wide screen to sort of set up the shot. And, and show the characters and everything but he's known for having this sort of um, objective approach to the screen so there aren't a lot of close-ups he sort of steps back and lets the viewers uh kind of make their own judgments about what's no, going on I, I do remember that from laura a lot mm-hmm. of a lot of it was like yeah. took place out in hawaii mm-hmm. it almost felt like a stage play at some points right. uh, i know in in bunny lake it's there's not like a lot of shot reverse shots where right. he's cutting from one actor to another actor. He's letting everyone get in the same shot, even if it's like a medium uh, uh, shot. Mm-hmm. You know, there's multiple people either using the left to right, mm-hmm. uh, you know, width of the frame, or sometimes using the depth uh, in that Z space back and forth. Right, and I wonder if if part of it is also the fact that he was, for the most part, his own producer as well. So like he produced Laura, he produced Bunny Lake. In fact, on Laura, he was originally not supposed to direct it, but he didn't like what the director was doing, so he steps in. With Bunny Lake, it was something where he found the material and he hired the writers to adapt it. He's one of those directors that is from Europe and then came to America during or before the Second World War. And so a lot, a lot of his career, his early career, he was making films for... I think it was Fox. And so that's when he was making some of those noirs and crime thrillers like um, Where the Sidewalk Ends. Fallen Angel. Mm -hmm, Fallen Angel. Um, And he has this real classic Hollywood style sort of about him. Just in the way, like the use of the wide establishing shots and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would would agree that he's going to be more classical uh, director. And. And then I think the consensus is that when his career starts to fall apart is later. He tried to be hip and adapt sort of to the to the changing times and, and um even in Bunny Lake there's there's it's brief but there's a scene where the Carol Lindley character is walking through London and they do this sort of like it's supposedly inspired by uh French New Way, specifically I think Breathless. There's a mm. some of that going on there. I know in the 
commentary for the movie, they debate whether or not this is the last great Preminger film or the beginning of the end of his yeah. of his films. It's certainly not the beginning of the end, because um, I think Bunny Lake is a great film. Yeah. I think it's actually both. <laughs> both the last good one and the beginning of the end. I don't know. I haven't seen... I don't think I've seen any Preminger past this one. Uh, like uh, like Skidoo, I think, is after this, maybe. Yeah, so I haven't seen any Preminger after this, but there are a couple of titles that I'm kind of interested in seeing. Like, there's um, Tell Me That You Love Me, Julie Moon, and Skidoo, Rosebud. I have to say, I really like the titles of old movies. Yeah. Yeah, like it's, they're almost like a sentence. Yeah. Yeah, they're very bold compared to like today's movies. They're just kind of one word, two right. word titles. Which I think is probably uh, comes from uh, this new era where where studio executives probably have these really arbitrary rules about the lengths of time. I think someone tells a story about that. Some studio executive having an arbitrary rule about titles have to be a certain length. Mm-hmm. And I think like down to the syllable. Well, they even say like having a question mark on the end of your uh, title mm. is like a death nail that your movie's going to do bad. That there's like yeah. this whole right. slew of movies that end with a question that did awful. Yeah, I think like right. producers are now kind of focusing like alphabet movies <laughs> that start with like A through H are more common now for streaming purposes. Uh, if you go look online, they like, the first things that pop up. That's nuts. It is, but that's that's what the producers are paid to yeah. do. Yeah, I mean, and I know that if if a movie flops, for example, I think Ghost of Mars. So now all of a sudden you can't use the word Mars in a title. Right. <laughs> so a Princess of Mars becomes John Carter. You gotta be um, careful right. of getting wrongly associated with other movies. Um, but back to Primager, what I would say is he's known in his films for tackling taboo subjects so and we'll get into mm. buddy lake in the second portion of this when uh, we get into the spoilers but you think of something like daisy kenyon or fallen angel both deal with adultery bunny lake sort of touches on homosexuality a little bit well yeah the the, the landlord depending on who he's talking to depends on yeah. what uh, perversion he's right. wanting to uh, put forth whether it's you know he's talking to the cops about getting beaten <laughs> or or when he's kind of flirting with Carol Lindley uh, and Lake yeah so he's he's kind of all over the place so then before we get to talking about the film I have I just kind of I thought it was interesting that um, so it's adapted from a novel by an author named Miriam Modell who wrote under the pen name of Evelyn Piper and and I've read it and it is substantially different and you know we'll, the book yeah and we'll we'll get into that in the spoiler section we'll talk we'll compare and contrast maybe a little bit and it was adapted by John and Penelope Mortimer who they were both writers John was actually a, a trial lawyer and he's known for uh, Rumple of the Bailey Rumple of the Bailey uh, he's actually quite an accomplished writer right. and um, who wrote in his spare time yeah uh, and Penelope mostly wrote uh, nonfiction, and she so she was hired by Priminger to adapt it but she since she has trouble she says with, with 
just the idea of fiction, she suggested that they bring in her husband to, to help, which they did. And I'm going to sound like a broken record, so I'm going to say again, we'll, we'll talk about some of that when we get into spoilers. Mm-hmm. So the first thing you see in Bunny Lake is missing are the, these credits by Sal Bass, who is known uh, as one of the great creators of opening title sequences. And he worked with mostly with, I think, most notably with Alfred Hitchcock, yeah. like Psycho, Anatomy of a Murder, which is another premature film, but then also did the titles for North by Northwest. Um, well, so, that, uh, what's really interesting about the titles is it's really it's just a man ripping paper, just a hand mm-hmm. ripping paper. And if you go back and think about it after the movie's over, it's really, it's it feels like Stephen ripping out every yeah. evidence of mm-hmm. Bunny from their life yeah even like hiding the, it the last page that gets written is like a little cut out of the tiny girl yeah and it rips it off the title pages but they're, they're great great title sequence i mean the majority of title sequences in from all of cinema history kind of boring and forgettable right. yeah and that one that one sticks in my mind yeah, yeah. it's so simple yeah. yeah and it's got that the 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 music by the composer paul glass um who did mostly television work and this for a couple of reasons is his most notable score um, part of that part of the reason the success of the soundtrack financially is for the inclusion of the zombies but and we'll, we'll talk about that but you know you think about that and think of like modern title sequences like I, f- I feel like maybe since X-Men especially in big budget films yeah they've all been kind of really repetitive mm-hmm. yeah I mean X-Men and Fight Club basically had the same mm-hmm. opening title sequence yeah and that's like a, you, you see that I feel like a lot with just like the camera going through some sort of digital creation or something yeah. and then when you get something that's sort of visually creative and understated it kind of it really stands out yeah especially if it kind of pays into the motifs and themes mm-hmm. of the movie like uh, the style sequence right. does and then so like the zombies are incorporated into the film not subtly <laughs> but I think it was, it was sort of part of a trend Right, like in the, at the time, some sort of co-branding or cross-promotion, and they were included as part of the film to help raise independent money to fund it. Um, and I'm blanking on is it blow up, maybe it has it with like the the Yardbirds, something. It's, like a, it's a is a band that like is so it's part of like this thing in okay. the '60s or '70s where sometimes you would have like a a band feature in some way in the film as part of to help brand it and help raise money. Um, yeah, it doesn't hurt that the, the, the songs that the zombies right. play in the movie are they're quite good. Yeah, right. They're kind of like a, a All new the, age Beatles type of sound. Yeah. But the song they don't play is She's Not There. <laughs> the one that would be fitting. Right, exactly. I mean, at one point, like when the, the two characters in the bar, aren't the zombies on the television in the mm-hmm. bar? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 they're not video? so. It's just like. The get this close up, close ups on the TV while they're performing, and while she's trying to escape from the hospital, mm. they're like on the radio or something. It's right, just, it's it's very obvious, very gratuitous. Obvious. Yeah, yeah, uh, to the point where you think it'd be distracting, but I don't bother by it because mm. I, I enjoy the music. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have this cast that they're sort of they're people who aren't necessarily big names now so you've got the main cast of course Laurence Olivier who is considered one of the greatest actors of all time and Rebecca and Spartacus um, as Superintendent Newhouse but then like Carol Lindley other than this maybe her biggest role is the Poseidon Adventure and she also played Jean Harlow in the film Harlow 
Uh, and then Kier Dulea, who plays the brother Stephen Lake's biggest role is 2001 A Space Odyssey. Very different character than uh, he plays here in Bunny Lake. On, can you get in? No! Come on time! Otto Preminger presents Bunny Lake is missing. What's suspense? <laughs> Lawrence Olivier is immense. Come on time! Oh yeah! Oh yeah! The zombies are there. That's us. That's me. That's him. That's he. We wanna go. Great. All right, and so for the rest of the podcast, we're going to be talking about spoilers. So if you haven't seen it, you might want to pause it and check it out. I also kind of feel like it's a great film regardless, so you should watch it. Or even if you don't pause this, you might want to listen to it. No, I, I definitely recommend if you haven't seen the movie, don't be spoiled. Go ahead and yeah. watch it. Then, then yeah, that's, like, that's the best way to enjoy it is going in blind, yeah. not knowing anything. It's true. And actually... You know, there are a couple films. This one is one of them that after Psycho, they adapted the not letting in people after the start time rule. Yeah. Uh, and part of the promotional campaign was heavily, it was badgering people to, to be on time to the film. Because I guess film going culture was just a lot different yeah, back then. Yeah, because you could just buy a ticket and just sit in the theater all day. Right. So there's a, it's on YouTube and it's also as a special feature on the disc. Uh, like a two-minute advert of the zombies singing a, a jingle that they wrote called Be On Time. Yeah. With that said, we're going to dive into spoilers. So the first thing you see in the film is the character of Stephen Lake. And I feel like pretty early on, Otto Permanger tips the hand of what's of what's happening. He basically, if you're, if you're an astute watcher of the film, you'll see he picks up a toy bunny and the swing is in motion. Yeah. So right yeah. off the bat, it's you can take that to mean that like, bunny does exist because he's still at this point having an essential mystery right, right but i like the way that he sort of shows you things too and we talked about sort of the objective nature of the film so you'll see there's a there's a point early on where um Anne lake is going through the house and unpacking their things mm-hmm. and you'll see her place thing objects on the mirror and then the right. camera kind of goes to that uh, and it shows you that before it moves on to something else so that later when they come back and they show you the empty space where the object was you can see that it's, either either your your eyes are lying to you or somebody moved it right or she's just crazy right <laughs> <laughs> but yeah like it shows her placing her toothbrush mm-hmm. her brother or Stephen's toothbrush and um, you know Bunny's toothbrush and then also laying out her clothes so that later on when they come back and she's there with the police, the only things that have been disturbed are bunnies. Mm-hmm. Like when she's laying out the clothes on the bed, she places like her nightgown and Bunny's nightgown. Her nightgown stays and doesn't get touched. Even the mask that she like tosses onto the bed is still there. The only thing that gets disturbed are all of Bunny's things. Right. You mentioned kind of how objective the movie appears to be, at least. Yeah. And one of the big kind of uh, antagonists in the movie is the police. Yeah. 
Right. And uh, Sir Lawrence Olivier, who kind of believes that uh, Anne is kind of making all this stuff up. So that kind of goes against the objective nature of the, the camera, you know, kind yeah. of, at least that scene of her yeah. setting the stuff there. But I think even with the with the police, they're sort of sort of uh, removed emotionally from the action, right? Like they don't, they kind of like tiptoe up to the point of making judgments. So there's mm-hmm. that the scene where they're in the bar, mm-hmm. but then without, they never really make an accusation about whether or not because I don't recall them making an accusation about whether or not the validity of, of a, are making a judgment as to whether or not the the child may actually exist. Well, it's um, heavily insinuated, right? Yeah, the they're end. they're very skeptical. Yeah, but but they're sort of at the same place that the audience is, and they're kind yeah, of like a vehicle for the audience, and they're just sort of like weighing everything and checking out all the leads. While the camera is quite objective and. You know, they, they're showing us things that are, are happening. They also kind of give us this sense that we find out later, pretty, you know, a ways into the movie that Stephen is her brother and not, say, a husband or a boyfriend. Like, right. It gives that impression that they're a couple in not only their blocking, but also their interactions with each other. They don't explicitly say for quite a while that it's her brother. So that also kind of gives you, while we don't have a narrator that is, you know, untrustworthy, but that kind of brings us to question everything else that we've seen up to that point. If, oh, if they're kind of hiding the fact that that was her brother, what else could they be hiding from us or not being completely forthright about? Right. I remember the first time watching this, kind of kind of being like in that mindset of trying to figure out what's going to happen at the end. Mm-hmm. There's not too many options as to, to what's happened to the girl. Right. Either the girl exists or she doesn't exist. And they have a couple of suspects who might have taken her. But kind of just playing detective along with the movie, which is always right. fun. Right. And I think it's also it's worth noting some of the changes from the novel here, too. So like the novel takes place in New York, and they switch the setting to London. So there's sort of this fish-out-of-water thing happening where you have this American character who is not only is she now is does no one really believe her but there's no one she can really turn to right. um, which I guess yeah when you have someone who's doesn't have other friends and family in that area that narrows down that pool of people who can prove that Bunny right. is real yeah. to it, even smaller and then it kind of just it isolates her yeah. you know it uh-huh. kind of gives it that emotional edge too that, that she is kind of closed off from everybody Right, and then like the other change, there are a couple of really big changes. Like so, for one, in the novel, her brother is not a character. Okay, changes entirely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, there the there's a there's a character who's a psychiatrist because instead of like going directly to the police, they say like this person needs some sort of a mental help, and so there's a psychiatrist that kind of follows her around as she's searching for her daughter, and then also since we're in the spoiler section, I feel like I can go ahead and say this, but like, since there's no brother, there's the, it's not the brother who kidnaps her. It is instead the headmistress of the school who I think was, is character that was defined as being infertile or something and just wanted the child to raise her as her own. 
Um, and then the, the, that psychiatrist is also like a romantic interest in the novel. Oh, interesting. Well, her brother's got a romantic interest in this one too. <laughs> right, right. And, and apparently it was that change that... So Otto Preminger had the rights to the novel and he shopped it to a couple of different screenwriters um, before he settled on Penelope Mortimer to adapt it. Um, and the two of the other screenwriters, one was a guy named uh, Ira Levin who also wrote Rosemary's Baby and the Stepford Wives mm. uh, and the other one was Dalton Trombo but it wasn't until Penelope Mortimer was hired and she introduced the character of Stephen and the suggestion of potential incest that it piqued Otto Preminger's interest and that's when they moved ahead with the project some more taboo subjects for them though. yeah because they don't even in the book do they hint at who Bunny's um, father is I think it's mentioned in the book I'm sure and I it's been a few years since I've read it but I think it's pretty similar in that that the father character is not in it mm-hmm. he's not he's not on screen so to speak not in the picture at all right kind of, kind of like in this one yeah because they don't even mention like whether it's a divorce or a one night stand or well she she mentions she mentions in the bar that Oh yeah, yeah didn't this guy right. probably proposed to her and she yeah, said no. Yeah, right. She said yeah. no. I forgot about that scene. It's a good scene. He was still willing. I was the one who said no. Why? I wasn't in love with him. Stephen said I'd already made one mistake. Why complicate it with the second? Your brother sounds like a sensible young man. Eats a few times. Even like in Daisy Kenyon, you know, the, the whole thing is um, uh, Joan Crawford plays this character who she's like a, a single woman and she's like a fashion illustrator, but she's having uh, an affair with a married man. And there are no real judgments made about it throughout the course of the film. Michael, I think you should watch it. You'd like it, yeah. I think. Uh, the, there's also, it's, uh, it's Joan Crawford. There's a male lead I can't remember the name of. I don't think it's Dana Andrews, but Dana Andrews was in a couple of other auto furniture films. Henry Fonda okay. is also in it. So, and then I would say, so I have, this is a rather, rather long quote that I stole from the commentary. Did you listen to the commentary? I listened to parts of the commentary. Yeah. So there's a part where, so they talk about how Penelope was having trouble adapting it because she has trouble with fiction. And so she, they enlisted the help of her husband. But I'm going to read this quote. It says, But even when I was back at my familiar desk, I couldn't write it. I've always been paralyzed when it comes to, to writing fiction. Who are these people? What makes them behave as they do? How do they talk? Brush their teeth? What do they remember? Plots, of, plots or consequences of behavior? And I have no idea how to impose one on a set of characters I don't know. John, on the other hand, could do it with ease. Otto amiably agreed to my suggestion that we should collaborate and summoned us to Hawaii where he was shooting the bombing of Pearl Harbor in, in, in harm's way. Perminger and John discussed the dramatic possibilities of losing, losing a five-year-old in Hempstead and the whole thing became so unreal that when I went to sleep with my eyes open, that I went to sleep with my eyes open, waking with a start to murmur what I thought were appropriate comments. And I think the, like, just like, I think that sort of introduces the idea of the whole thing having a sort of dreamlike atmosphere right. and a sort of unrealness about everything. Well, they kind of talk about at the beginning of the commentary how it's very reminiscent of things like um, 
Alice in Wonderland, mm-hmm. and it gives it this dreamlike quality, uh, and the fact that there is a looking glass, and that what takes Alice into Wonderland is following a bunny, <laughs> and so there's this overarching, just kind of dream and labyrinth-like reality that they're existing in, that they can kind of the characters in us can get lost in this world yeah there's kind of a lot of parallelisms to like Alice in Wonderland you know, they're the characters themselves mm-hmm. yeah, the, the uh, landlord of the property mm-hmm. he seems like something out of Alice in Wonderland yeah. <laughs> and the uh, old uh, the old mistress that lives the, in the attic of the school yeah, and, yeah. And, and she does say curious sir and curious sir right yeah and then even like the proprietor of the doll shop um, which is a real operational doll shop. Hospital. Doll, doll hospital, right. And apologies to all dolls out there for <laughs> suggesting they're not sentient. <laughs> but I think that's one, one of the stronger aspects of this, this movie mm-hmm. is just the characters and the settings. Yeah. The, the characters are all likable, enjoyable in their own ways, even though the, the landlord is a creep. <laughs> but but he's, he's, he's interesting to watch. So is like uh, Lawrence Olivier. He's yeah. interesting to watch, and the the headmistress of the school. You have all these interesting characters kind of built around this mm-hmm. this case. Yeah, and I think it's interesting. Like, so I mean, we've talked about a couple of times the landlord is who's played by an actor named Noel Coward, who was also a playwright, and it, it kind of goes to uh, they mentioned this in the commentary, but like even a lot of the bit actors in this film are people who have like they were at some point they like they had like their moment as being like a star or being known actors like a British uh, either stage actor mm-hmm. TV radio and then the character played by uh, Clive Revel who's I guess they refer to him as a flatfoot like the assistant to Detective Newhouse oh, yeah, yeah. that guy he's been in he's still alive he's 87 Ooh. he's done voice work in, in Star Wars wow like he's he's been around and then like later in the film the doctor or the taxi cab driver are all actors of of note so Noel Coward who in this character are in this film I guess he's Noel Coward's character is I guess technically sort of bisexual or at least doesn't that's the insinuation yeah right into uh, all sorts of kinks BDSM and whatnot yeah and in real life the actor he was gay but he never came out of the closet and apparently in the 60s when they filmed this homosexuality in London was still illegal but he had he's another one of those guys like he was in a D.W. Griffith film as a child actor in like 1918 wow that guy that's a proprietor of the doll hospital was at the time this film was made was like 87 he was born in like 1873 or something like that and this is one of his last roles because I think he died at age 90 a few years after this well, it is well cast and yeah. very well acted and every character feels like their own individual selves mm-hmm. and just pulls you deeper mm-hmm. into this rabbit hole of a mystery I have a question speaking of the mystery you know I don't I don't think there was ever a moment when I was watching the movie that I actually thought Bunny wasn't real I was always on the side of mm-hmm. of Anne Lake, and I felt like, yeah, I, Bunny's real. She's not crazy. Uh, I didn't know what happened to the child, you know, but I always 
felt she was real and they either find her or find her dead. Um, so what about y'all? Where did the movie take y'all? Did you ever think that bunny wasn't real? I, I, my, my opinion fluctuated throughout the movie. I kind of leaned towards the Laurence Olivier side, kind of thinking that, no, she might just be making all this up. But you know, I've seen similar movies like this, child abduction mm-hmm. gone missing movies that come out in like uh, early 2000s. Uh, there's what the flight, flight plan, plan with uh, Jodie Foster and another one called uh, Changeling. Uh, no, not, oh yeah, Jolie. Changeling. Yeah, I forgot about that one. Uh, and there's another one called The Forgotten, I think, with uh, Julianne Moore. And in each of those, what, the Changeling, the kid ends up dead. Uh, flight plan, the kid's hidden in the cargo right. plane. Uh, and then in The Forgotten, I think it's Aliens. Kids. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What's the Kurt Russell movie where his wife is missing? Oh, uh, Breakdown. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, yeah. So, so, I've seen this plot recycled many times over, so I'm, I'm gonna. I had like all the possibilities in my mm-hmm. head. Even Aliens is a possibility <laughs> at some point yeah. during the movie. But the interesting thing is, that those movies kind of in their twists and whatnot, they all tended to not be good. <laughs> even even Flight Plan's a terrible movie. All all those changeling, all right, but. But this one, it executes its twist very well. And it was very believable right. to me uh, that the kid was tucked away in a trunk for 12 hours or so. And there's also like that it shares a pedigree with a film like something like Gaslight, which is mm-hmm. similar in the idea of trying to convince someone that they might be going crazy. I don't think this film, it doesn't go as far. Like that's not the brother's intention, I don't believe. No. no. Uh, but I kind of wish... You know, you gave a list of all these movies, but all of these movies, the missing person was real. Yes, very true. I, I would like to see a movie where it turns out that it is just like I'm a big sure, move of the imagination. And... I'm sure there, I mean, that would be such a disappointing ending for the audience. <laughs> oh, she was crazy after all. Uh, I thought there probably is a movie out there that exists with that ending. It just did it's probably just a bad movie. <laughs> hey, it could be fun. It could be interesting. It could be. So one thing, like, I wish, I really wish we had, like, a fourth person here, perhaps, like, a mother or someone who can tell us how they were feeling. Because, you know, there's that scene when Anne Lake goes to pick up Bunny from the school and she's just not there. And I've, I feel like that's got to be such a, a scary, visceral feeling that I I wish we had someone here who could really describe what that must be like. Hmm. Oddly enough, uh, when I first watched this, I did watch it with my mother. She yeah. sat there with me watching it. Uh, and she was always kind of on the side of yeah. it, thinking the kid was real. Uh, every other turn, I was questioning whether or yeah. not the kid existed. But uh, yeah, it was interesting watching it with your own mother, kind of, kind of, kind of seeing kind of those fears kind of projected onto her. That reminds me. So, yeah, you asked sort of how we felt throughout the movie. And I don't, the first time I saw it, I don't remember. Where I was, and I have this problem where I, when I, if I rewatch something, I can't forget that I've seen it. Right. But I do think that just the I, like the suggestion of the details, the close-ups on the items that she pulls them out of the suitcase and sets them up, and all those things to me suggest that to me it was more about figuring out who was trying to deceive her rather mm-hmm. than whether or not the child was real. But I know that talking to people after the screening, there was a there were people who were sort of like back and forth uh, depending on where in the movie it was, what it was showing you and telling you at the time. Yeah, I think that kind of goes with what kind of mindset a person yeah. has. You know, I tend to be more of a, a real estate, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So kind of me taking the, the perspective of the police, trying to lay out all the facts in front of me, right. seeing questioning. Uh, 
might make me a bad person, but uh... <laughs> <laughs> You're I, do, I do my best to assume positive intent with people, mm-hmm. unless they give me a reason otherwise. Yeah, so it's an yeah. interesting, like psychological, introspective type type movie. Right. So let's talk about the ending. Now, Al, my understanding is you're not a biggest fan of the turn. <laughs> <laughs> I love this movie up until that third act, yeah. which I, I like the fact that the girl's still alive and all that. Mm-hmm. The craziness that ensues with her brother going back to the house and discovering all this stuff, it gets too over the top. Is it like the, the camera, the way that the camera work changes? And sort it's of everything. Make... It's, okay. it's, it's, it's the camera, it's the performances. Especially from the brother, uh, mm. which I'm sure it's quite intentional, that kind of right. uh, Child, like, childlike mentality yeah. that he has there at the end. And then, and then them playing games repeatedly. They play uh, hide and seek and. Uh, like follow the leader, yeah, jumping and, on the trampoline. Right, and, and right. It's, it's just so much. And then that whole third act, we kind of lose sight of Lawrence Olivier. There's right. a last scene looking at the shipping records. Right, and there's like a long stretch of time when he's not there. Yeah, yeah, and kind of more in a more conventional movie, like he would come up to save the day at the end, mm-hmm. even though he literally shows up in like the last ten seconds right. and does nothing. So, so this, well, I wouldn't say. I think at that point, you know, Anne is sort of. How else was she, is she going to get off that swing? How else is yeah. she going to be able to stop distracting her brother and trying to save her daughter's life? I think she's intentionally mm-hmm. playing games louder and louder and louder. She's like she's by the end of it, she's screaming like higher, higher. Because if anything, that will get the neighbors to wake up mm-hmm. and maybe call the cops that way. Like anything to both distract her brother from Bunny, but also try to get attention from the neighborhood. Right, and I didn't interpret it like that. I, mean, I just thought it would kind of stylistically it kind of gets almost surreal in that third right. act and I thought that was just kind of playing into this fact that the camera angles are now tilted right. performances are louder and bigger and everything right yeah no it's true because like you know for the first two thirds of the film it's just very like we said before this sort of objective uh, subtle camera work uh, there's not a ton of movement and then all of a sudden you do that third act and like when she's on the swing the camera sort of moves with her yeah, going yeah. up and down on the swing it's, it's um, trying to make the audience go crazy along yeah. with the brother. <laughs> I think it's part of this tradition of faux intellectual Pseudos? or faux scientific, like psychological films, like so, like Psycho or something like that. I'm not sure, like that, how well that would actually hold up to scrutiny uh, by a professional. Or Peeping Tom is another one that, mm-hmm. like, you don't know. Like, there's sort of like this real shallow understanding, perhaps, of mental illness mm-hmm. that they use. They play up for dramatic effect. But I get it helps me just to see it as part of this sort of tradition, and not critique it too heavily. Primerger was just doing what, what Hitchcock had done and Michael Powell. So very true. But I, I, I tend to prefer those two movies mm-hmm. over this one for for some reason. I don't I don't know why. You prefer Peeping Tom over Bunny Lake? Yeah, I do. I, I would have that conversation one day. <laughs> but um, see, from that the, the bizarre like in like third act at the house. It's just like you have fallen to the bottom of the rabbit hole, and it has just gotten weird. You know, <laughs> we are finally in there with the Cheshire Cat, and it's just crazy. And that's what I like about it. It's just like this. It, it really starts with the dollhouse and just or the doll hospital mm-hmm. with these creepy like shots inside this 
dark building and him burning the doll that realization that it's 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 been him all along you think he might burn down the whole hospital exactly <laughs> in the in the the doctor or the doll doctor is in a wheelchair right. he can't leave mm-hmm. you know so but like that's like that that moment it just ramps up real quick and just gets bizarre uh, uh, and then we get like the whole and escaping from the hospital oh yeah yeah yeah, he gets he gets her uh, uh, committed, mm-hmm. uh, and because he knocks her out, and uh, but she ha- is very single minded. Like, like I like that she is not relying on anyone else to solve this for her. She realizes if she can't trust her brother, she can trust no one. It's up to her to save her child, right. and very single mindset. And she, you know, runs straight for it. Does not think about her own safety and that's what I really like about it because usually um, you know especially probably at this time having a, a female being in charge and being the solution to the problem is it as common as it should be you think that this she sort of falls into the final girl trope I mean like it's like a distant cousin maybe yeah because there's you know she is the final but she's also the only girl yeah yeah. (laughs) so for those who don't know the final girl trope is one that's common in horror movies where typically uh she may be the sole survivor of something like a like a in a slasher film um jamie lee curtis in halloween or um whoever the survivor is in the first friday the 13th movie they made example. a movie called The Final Girls, mm-hmm. which <laughs> yeah. is kind of a, a comedy horror movie about this trope. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, so that'll do it for the spoiler section. And when we come back, we're going to have some recommendations. fantastic fest so i watched a couple of things there but probably one of the best things that i've watched here recently was hunt for the wilder people Mm. by taika watiti i'm trying to get myself hyped up for for ragnarok i kind of feel guilty that i haven't seen hunt for the wilder people yet it's a lot of fun i really enjoyed it um it's just this kind of bizarre romp through the New Zealand outback uh, in the bush and it just has that a very unique voice of comedy that stands out amongst all the same kind of generic types of humor these days uh, so it, it has a lot of heart but it's also really funny so it's it's very exciting and I can't wait to see what he does with uh, Thor Ragnarok Al Uh, you know with all the kind of sports playoffs going on these days uh, I really haven't had too much time to watch any movies but one that I did watch that stood out was an old movie called The Whole Shooting Match 
uh, which came out in the late 70s uh, by a director named uh, Eagle Pinnell, who was a uh, Austin, Texas-based filmmaker. Uh, and the whole shooting match is this strange southern comedy, very kind of minimalist, about these two kind of bums, two, two, two idiots that try to do these get-rich-quick schemes uh, and fail miserably at it. But it's, it's really this kind of slice-of-life type uh, movie, kind of almost the death of the American dream type thing, kind of Last Picture Show-esque type, uh, type movie. And uh, I do believe that uh, Robert Redford saw this movie in the late 70s at the uh, Salt Lake uh, City Film Festival. Mm-hmm. And he said it was one of the movies that kind of made him want to make the Sundance Film mm-hmm. Festival for lower-budget, independent uh, movies like this. And uh, just it's it's a great movie. Very kind of it, it inspired uh, Richard Linklater. Call his all the early stuff like Slacker and Days and Confused, kind of the slice of life comedies. Uh, it's it's a really good movie. I would highly recommend it. Um, and I've got two related wrecks. One is a movie. Actually, the last movie I saw was Kubo and the Two Strings, which I recommend watching just because of the gorgeous animation. Um, and I I also like the plot including the ending which i think some people have well we won't talk about I'm it because that would the be a sp- fan of the ending right uh and we won't we won't go into that because that would be considered a spoiler uh but i would also recommend an article called from a it's on the website priceonomics and it's called how the father of claymation lost his company and it talks about the guy who created the california raisins and kind of pioneered the form of claymation um, and also founded the company that was eventually bought by Phil Knight and became like a studios who produced Kubo and the Two Strings. Oh, okay. And I think it goes into in the article that Phil Knight, as I recall, bought it because he was tired of his son not having a real job. <laughs> uh, at the time, he was pursuing a rap career under the name Chili T. Chili T. Chili T. All right. Yeah. Um, so read it. It's, it's actually it's pretty interesting. as an article, I think. Maybe um, Tom Hanks should buy a uh, studio for his son that wants to be a rapper. <laughs> if the Shit. goal, if if the, if the goal is to get him to no longer be a rapper, then that appears to be a successful strategy. <laughs> All right, that'll do it for this for this episode. And I'll see you guys next time. Bye. See you. As always, thanks for listening, and make sure to go to filmquotesfilm.com where you can like us on Facebook to keep up with what we've got going on. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at filmquotesfilm. Subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Send us feedback and let us know what you think of the show. Uh, You can also send feedback to filmquotesfilm at gmail.com. Thanks again to the Riverdale 10 for hosting the Arkansas Times for being our partner in this endeavor. Uh, And don't forget... The screening is every third Tuesday. And join us this month where we'll be screening Christian Johnson's Camera Person. Until next time, this is Film Close Film. superior fonda (laughs) (laughs) oh we love all fondas
Like two of the three. <laughs> Maybe not equally, but we love them all. <laughs>